Welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday, the actuality news show, offering unique insights and in-depth analysis, featuring South Africa's top business leaders, newsmakers, and analysts for today's professionals. Your host, Jeremy Metz. Welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday. I'm Jeremy Maggs with a brisk 30 minutes on the latest in South African and global news. We're live and then up as a podcast. We'll bring you insightful interviews with key business and political figures, prominent newsmakers and leading experts, all packed into a concise, informative update. It's Wednesday, the 31st of January. Coming up, South Africa's corruption score drops in a global index, a new report on BRICS wealth and the power of the grouping. Our shameful child hunger problem in South Africa calls for more consultation on the government's much-vaunted energy plan and geopolitical tensions and the impact on SA fuel prices. Transparency International has released its annual Corruption Perceptions Index report. The CPI is the leading global indicator of public sector corruption, providing an annual comparative snapshot of around 180 countries and territories. And South Africa has not covered itself with glory. First up on the program is Wayne Duvenhage from the organization Undoing Tax Abuse. Wayne, what do you believe are the primary factors contributing to the decline in the index? Yeah, thanks, Jeremy. Well, look, it is a perception index, but perception, as we all know, is reality. And uh, these are quite accurate. The sad thing is that, and I think this is what it's all about, we've come out of state capture, we've come out of a Zonda commission, and we see no change. In fact, we see things getting worse, especially at local government level. And so what the public's perception of South Africa is that we are going backwards, which is sad. Uh, The new administration came into power and... uh, uh, saw Ramaphosa on the on the ticket of an anti-corruption stance, uh, and yet nothing changes. It just seems to get worse. So the perception is that we are going backwards, and our perception as well, and our experience of what's going on at Arta is that we are going backwards when it comes to dealing with corruption. Wayne, post-Zondo, there was so much optimism. Why do you think there has been no change? Why are we still spinning wheels here? Well, it's a, sure, it's a, it's a big picture, but I think it all stems from a lack of political will. Uh, If we don't challenge this from the top, uh, it's not going to happen. And it's not a difficult thing. If it's led properly from the president down, put in all the, we know we've got the right structures, we've got the mechanisms, but that's all a lot of lip service. We need to resource them. So the NPA, we've always said, if you give them 10 billion rand extra, they'll give the country another 100 billion because we've got to start apprehending those who are involved. We need to work with civil society as government uh, so that, we can uh, point them in the direction. I mean, the amount of corruption that we are now uncovering in the various seaters around the country, it's, it's mind-blowing, and this is ongoing. So you have a national air, uh, issue, you have provincial and, and, and at local government, and, and the, the country, the government, is just not dealing with these uh, matters. The, the transparency related to procurement, ESKIM, Transnet, uh, it's it really is uh, an issue of a lack of political will and uh, and as a result of that, a lack of the necessary resources to tackle the issue. Do you think corruption is manifesting itself in a different way and are there new targets? 
Yeah, it is. It's manifesting itself everywhere. I mean, just speaking uh, speaking on a show last night uh, with the recent arrests of people that's selling uh, driver's licenses. You speak to anybody, you know, uh, uh, nobody's going to get their driver's license unless they pay an extra 2,000 rand to the powers that be at those testing stations. That's how it is. That's becoming our reality. It's almost as if the youth and people that are in the space think, well, this is how business is done. Isn't this the normal world? But it isn't. So when it becomes that endemic, into our, ingrained into our society, uh, then you know we're on a hiding to nothing. We've got to root this behavior out. But again, unless our criminal justice system is empowered and we have proper leadership in the police services, we're going to struggle with this problem. And to our great shame, we now sit in the category of what is termed flawed democracies. And inevitably, this image on the global stage is going to, if not already, having a major impact in terms of international relations and foreign investment. Yeah, it will. Absolutely. You know, when people see things going backwards, um, given all that we've come through, uh, given our history, uh, given the start that we had to our new democracy, uh, we, we really just are sending the wrong signals and people will be hesitant to invest here and to help us develop this country and take it where it should be if we are going to send signals out like this. So that, that's our reality and it needs to change. And I just sincerely hope that everybody participates in democracy when it comes up to these next elections and, and you know, they have power that they must uh, never underestimate. If you mine down a little more deeply, the Africa Organized Crime Index points to high levels of corruption, specifically in the public sector, uh, police, education, health being the most effective. Is there any way in which South Africa can address corruption in these critical sectors? Or do you think it has become so entrenched, so endemic, that we just need to factor it into everyday operations? No, I never believe that it's too late. We can deal with it. It has to be dealt with. It's now going to be, you know, need to be a combination and a collaborative approach from business, from civil society and government. And there are a lot of good people in government that don't want this to happen. And we need to root it out, uh, Jeremy. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a 1% uh, issue here. It's a handful of people that are hijacking the system and allowing the criminal justice uh, uh, mechanisms to, to, to be bypassed. We can stop this and we have to stop it. We must never sit back and allow ourselves and say, well, this is our new reality and our new norm and and let's just live with it. Uh, That would be a sad day for this country. It would indeed. But those good people that you refer to, Wayne, are often bullied. They are uh, exhausted and they're despondent. Yeah. They are. And I was just this morning uh, meeting with a whistleblower who went through the same process uh, as as uh, many go through, they're ostracized, they're fired on trumped-up charges, they're pushed out, their lives are ruined as a result. And so, you know, we've just got to keep working harder, uh, making sure whistleblowers stay safe, gather as, enough, as much information as you can, uh, and, and, and we've just got to keep working. But uh, again, if this government is not going to do more to protect whistleblowers, they're not putting their ma- money where their mouths are, they are they, they have their put out the lip service that they are, are doing what they can, but they're not. They're actually doing nothing, quite frankly. And so it is up to civil society and, and we you know, appeal to big business. Get on board with these fights. Get on board with these challenges. Stop fearing government and take a stand because, uh, you know, they are, you know, business is the other side of the corruption coin. And, uh, the, and the good lot of good businesses out there, but they need to support the anti-corruption initiatives that have been taken by civil society because it's now up to the people to fight this fight if government isn't going to fight it. 
Wayne Duvenage, thank you very much. MoneyWeb at Midday, for all your up-to-date stories. The total investable wealth currently held in the BRICS block amounts to something in the region of 45 trillion US dollars, and its millionaire population is expected to rise by around 85% in the next decade. That's according to the inaugural BRICS Wealth Report published by international investment migration advisory firm Henley & Partners in association with global wealth intelligence firm New World Wealth. Let's give you a little more detail on this. Head of research at New World Wealth is Andrew Amoyles. so Andrew, a warm welcome. How competitive are these BRICS economies becoming then on the global stage, given those figures of, of, of wealth? In terms of competitiveness, the BRICS together have about 1.6 million US dollar millionaires out of about 20 million US dollar millionaires in the world. So actually, they're not as prominent as some might think, especially if you just look at liquid investable wealth, which is what we look at. But their wealth is definitely growing. There's been really strong growth in a number of BRICS economies over the last decade, including obviously China and India, and also new entrants like the UAE. Their wealth has almost doubled over the last decade in US dollar terms in all those three places. So, Andrew, if we have all of this money swelling about then, does that mean that there is more investment potential and appetite? Ah, absolutely. I I think especially in certain fast-growing cities like uh, Dubai and also in terms of South Africa and places like Cape Town, there's really strong growth projections, mainly due to semigration, but also due to a lot of wealthy people from the rest of the world moving to Cape Town. So our growth projections for Cape Town are about 85% growth in, in wealth per capita in Cape Town over the next decade, which is what will make it one of the top performing cities in the BRICS in terms of wealth growth. Interestingly, though, the report also says this country's millionaire population has experienced, um, I think I read a 20% decline since 2013. It would then be incumbent upon the country to have plans to reverse this trend to enhance its appeal to high net worth individuals. I take your point as far as the trajectory of Cape Town is concerned, but you'll also agree that there's a lot of uh, inequality and disparity as far as the rest of the country is concerned. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, our growth projections for Joburg are obviously a a lot lower and and, uh, in many ways Cape Town's benefiting from the deterioration of Johannesburg's wealth. And not just Cape Town, but all those areas in the Cape Winelands, Hermanus, a lot of those surrounding areas have benefited. And so, yeah, you're right in saying that the last 20 years, uh, wealth growth in South Africa in U.S. dollar terms has been negative about negative 20%. Um, that's mainly because the rand has gone from about 10 rand to the dollar to almost 20 now. So that's had a big effect and that's damaged the returns of the JSE, which is down 5% in dollar terms over the last decade. It's up about 70% in rand terms, but it's down in dollar terms. And obviously the prime residential prices in dollars haven't gone up. And there has obviously been some migration of wealthy people out of the country which has pulled down the uh, the millionaire and overall mm. wealth growth in U.S. dollar terms. So it becomes a lot more difficult, I imagine, then for South Africa to position itself to attract investment and also to foster uh, internal economic partnerships within the BRICS bloc. Well, in, in terms of the BRICS bloc and, and, and how it has, whether it has an effect on wealth creation in South Africa, that's obviously an open question. It's often dependent 
on, I, I guess, certain critical partnerships, like maybe between companies like Huawei and South African tech companies, that would probably create wealth. But I, I think in terms of just being part of the BRICS, there isn't necessarily much benefit to that from a wealth creation point of view, unless there are these corporate partnerships that, that um, happened, which I guess are happening to a degree, but probably not enough of them to have a real effect yet. And Andrew, in real time, the paradigm is also changing because we now have the inclusion of the so-called MENA countries into BRICS, and that, I imagine, introduces different diverse economic conditions, geopolitical dynamics, and it would then be interesting to see how the new inclusions can be leveraged in order to create more wealth. Yeah, absolutely. I think the addition of the UAE and, uh, to a lesser extent, Saudi Arabia have have definitely strengthened the BRICS because those countries have very high wealth per capita and GDP per capita and they're quite fast growing and they've got good forecasts and obviously Dubai is becoming one of the biggest wealth hubs in the world so that's a major plus but I think in terms of the additions of places like Iran that carries with it some risk because mm. it, it does have western sanctions on it and, and so that could create some kind of spillover towards the BRICS potentially, which would damage the BRICS. So there's a lot of bullishness here, but uh, there's also one big downside from what I can discern, and that is in spite of the strong economic indicators within BRICS countries, uh, the point is made that there is a noted lack of economic mobility compared to G7 nations. Yes, if you look at uh, the passport power and and the, the Henian passport index, it is a Henian partners report. And uh, essentially, um, that is much stronger in in the G7 and Western countries. There are some BRICS countries that have pretty good passport mobility, though, like the like the UAE and Brazil. But a lot of them, the passport mobility is is not as good as as the G7 nations. Andrew Amoyles, thank you very much for the insight. I do appreciate it. Uh, Head of research at New World Wealth. You're listening to MoneyWeb at midday. It's often a hidden, but it's an insidious problem in South Africa, hunger and malnutrition and the availability of food. There's some very disturbing statistics out as far as this is concerned. Is the problem getting worse? How can it be reversed? David Harrison, Chief Executive Officer of the DG Murray Trust, welcome to you. You write about 30 deaths a day of children from malnutrition-related causes. How can that be? So, um Thank you, Jeremy. Thanks very much for having me on the show. About we we know that um, many many children who die of severe acute malnutrition um, are not diagnosed as dying from SAM, as it's called. Uh, they die from pneumonia. Uh, they die from diarrhea. Uh, but when when clinicians went in and um, and did a review of deaths, um, they found that uh, malnutrition was. A, a severe acute malnutrition was a direct cause of death in a third of all children who died in South Africa. And where and is where is third, this happening, David? This is happening. This is happening in informal settlements and in deep rural areas across the country. So a third directly malnutrition. Uh, another third children who are underweight who are also dying. So only only a third of children who die in South Africa have got normal weight. So nutrition is a major major underlying cause of death for probably two-thirds of our children who die. And as I mentioned in the introduction, this is a problem that is often hidden and shunted to the margins. 
Well, that's right. I mean, if we, you know, if, if we try and consolidate those numbers, that's that's one classroom full of children dying every year. Uh, sorry, every day in South Africa, uh, ten to twenty equivalent of 20, 10 to 20 schools of children dying. Uh, most of them are younger than school going age, but dying from malnutrition. So, so it's, it's a real problem and it's an unforgivable problem in a country like South Africa, which in fact produces enough food for everybody. So what is wrong then with the system that enables this dreadful situation to occur? Well, we have a very similar uh, economic situation as, uh, as, was, as is experienced in Latin American countries. High degrees, high degrees of inequality, um, a production market that is geared to export. Uh, South Africa exports 29% of its food. Um, Latin American countries, 25%. Uh, countries that are, are big food ex- exporters but also protect their children are, are Asian countries and they only export 6% of their food. Um, so, so we have this challenge. We've got we've got uh, markets that are geared to uh, export. We've got a highly ine- uh, uh, unequal situation, which means that that uh, prices are set on the global market. Our poorer communities afford to uh, uh, to pay for that, and we are in South Africa largely operate cash economy, where where sixty percent of our population industrialized, so they can't own food at home. So what is the impact if the situation continues and given the torpor that South Africa demonstrates towards this issue? Well, the World Bank and others have really shown that countries that don't get on top of their malnutrition problems get stuck in a low growth, high inequality trap. Um, nutrition, uh, good nutrition is the absolute fundament of, of human capital development. All right, lost you in the system there, David, but uh, we have enough uh, information to go on. Thank you very much indeed, David Harrison, Chief Executive Officer of the DG Murray Trust. MoneyWeb at Midday, for all your up-to-date stories. Well, on to the environment now, and the Life After Coal campaign is asking for public consultation for the draft integrated resource plan for uh, that was developed last year to be extended by two months at least. Life After Coal, by the way, is a collection, a coalition of civil society groups, and Brandon Abdenor from the Centre for Environmental Rights is with us now on this particular issue. So what specific aspects of the plan, then, do you believe requires more in-depth analysis and public input? Okay, I think one of the areas that is of, of huge concern to us is the very cursory manner in which the plan addresses the issue of minimum emission standards or otherwise the, the laws that relate to air quality and air pollution. They framed in a manner as though this is some sort of minor regulatory obstacle to be balanced and, and navigated around, when in fact we're talking about the lives of people we know that the pollution from ESCOM plants alone kills between 2,200 and maybe up to 5,000 people a year, hundreds of thousands of cases of chronic health conditions, and, and up to a million days of lost productivity. So it's communities, their health, their well-being, and the economy as a whole. And much of that cost gets picked up by the public health system, for example. So this needs to be properly interrogated, and those numbers need to be put on the balance sheet when we're weighing up the efficacy and the the cost effectiveness of this plan, we should be putting these numbers into the mix as well. And we haven't seen any information to suggest that that's happening. So what would be a better way of addressing those emissions concerns? 
Well, it, it's, it's quite a holistic issue and, and one we've been sort of fighting on behalf of communities for years. So, I mean, I think a, a number of stakeholders need to get involved in this. But rather than, I think, sort of making relatively glib and superficial comments around this issue, is to really acknowledge and put on the table what these impacts are. And rather than letting those communities shoulder the burden of them, is let the overall electricity system of the country sort of co-shoulder those burdens, if you like. So more, more in-depth detail on those numbers and an open acknowledgement. The plan also proposes significant investment in gas projects compared to renewable sources like solar and wind. How do you view that? This is another area of major concern for us. So the problem with, with gas is that it's also a fossil fuel, number one. So when we take the full life cycle emissions, carbon emissions and equivalents such as methane into account, that system is effectively no cleaner than coal because a lot of that methane escapes in the value chain. So we're really replacing one fossil fuel system with another if we do that. So the climate harm risk really remains the same. And the tragic part about very little proposed investment in renewables is that, first of all, we we lose out on the very quick construction time of renewables and the, the cheap nature of that form of electricity throughout its life cycle compared to being dependent on a fossil fuel which we don't have domestic supplies of. So we're going to be locking ourselves into a system whereby we need to buy gas on the open markets, which is a price volatility. And given the geopolitics at the moment is a supply risk as well. And then sadly, by not investing in renewables, we're not supporting things like the very same department's renewable energy master plan, which is an industrialization plan which if we knew that this demand was there for renewables, we could actually start setting up and enabling industries to develop in the renewable space, which would take the pressure off the job losses that do come with decarbonization. So it's part of the whole just transition process. And it's a real missed opportunity. So those are the issues that you've raised as far as concern goes. The current public participation process has also been criticized for being limited and excluding significant parts of the public. Who's been excluded? Well, I can't can't name particular people who've been excluded. But at this point, I mean, we're only aware of two online sessions that have been called. I mean, I don't know if they've been publicized very widely. Much of the, the population doesn't have access to the connectivity required to sit in a three-hour online consultation. And the one that I have attended, for example, I can safely say that 50% or more of the questions that were asked by those presents were not answered. So it really does look like a bit of a tick box exercise, unfortunately. And we're not seeing the sort of meaningful commitment from the department to really get all the voices heard. That call that... Uh is being made for the consultation period to be extended. Do you think you will be heeded or do you think that this kind of thing simply falls on deaf ears? And to use your word, it's now being railroaded by uh, mineral resources and energy. I think it depends on how many other people make the call. I'm certainly aware that a number of different constituents are are asking for similar or considering doing so, not only from the sort of environmental and social justice sector that, that we operate in, but from other players in industry 
Um, we deal with a lot of energy experts and academics who are similarly disappointed and concerned at the, the lack of sufficient time. And I guess from the department's point of view, it, it comes down to the optics and what they can get away with and how genuinely committed they are to get that engagement. And I don't want to presuppose that they're not committed to that, but certainly some of our experience in the past suggests that they like to push through what their, their first choice is. I'm going to leave it there. Brandon Abdenor, thank you very much indeed. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. I want to finish the program today with a quick look at uh, petrol and uh, diesel prices and month-end data from the Central Energy Fund is pointing to a 50 cent per litre hike in prices uh, inbound for motorists when the Department of Mineral Resources and Energy announces official changes. Koketso Mano is a senior economist at FNB and is with me now. Koketso, welcome. So with the recent sharp increase in petrol and diesel prices, primarily attributed to a weaker rand and obviously the ongoing tensions in the Middle East and the Red Sea. What short-term economic impact are you foreseeing for consumers? Sure, and hello, Jeremy. I think what we're worried about is we're generally expecting a slowdown in inflation, so a disinflation trend going into 2024. And we've already started to see that. I mean, if you compare 6.9% inflation in 2022 and then 6% inflation in 2023. So we're hoping inflation will continue to slow, um, going closer towards the the central bank's target. So the worry here is we're already seeing a post-pandemic uplift in some of your services numbers. So if you think about those periodical surveys, medical inflation, um, education, so we're expecting a bit of a bump from that. Um, So if you couple that with still sticky goods inflation. That means that the consumer is going to be uh, under pressure, at least in the first quarter of this year, before we start to see, um, you know, the rent starting to improve, say, in the second half of the year, where we also expect to see, um, you know, some rate cuts coming into the system. So we're expecting this fuel price um, increase to, to just compound the pressure on the consumer. Of more consequence, perhaps, as well, as I did mention geopolitical tensions, uh, particularly in the mm-hmm. Red Sea. Um, obviously, Koketso, that has the propensity to influence energy security as well as pricing stability. And we need more certainty in order to grow, don't we? Mm, definitely. Definitely. It doesn't help that these geopolitical tensions are currently quite e- escalated. I mean, we're already hearing now um, shipping delays, you know, uh, having to go through the Cape uh, route. And obviously that, that only re-emerges or re-in, you know, reimposes supply chain issues. So it's not very helpful at this time. And I think what is really supportive here and countering the fact that we do have this Middle East conflict um, and we do generally have um, elevated um geopolitical tensions is the fact that global growth is expected to slow this year and that has been something that's um, helping to keep um, you know the fuel or the oil price rather range bound um, we also see in the latest IMF forecast even though they have upgraded their forecast for global growth global growth still remains below where we would have been pre-pandemic uh, so so that's really been helpful China's um, recovery has also been quite modest um, and that's the best way of putting it so that's something that also is weighing on the market so in general for this yeah, what the market is expecting is that there will be a very modest um, 
a, a supply surplus um, in the system, and that should help to tap or to cap rather the rally that oil prices could have from this geopolitical tensions. Coquette, so how cold is it going to become for the rand? Do you think you referenced the fact that the currency has shown some resilience amidst all of these uh, macroeconomic shifts? But that interplay between international events and the rand's performance uh, is a difficult one to read, isn't it? It is, it is. Um, there is also a very huge dollar story um, in, included here as well. Um, so when we think about the rent to the dollar, that's also something that we need to consider. But I think in general, um, when you look at the, the global forecast, um, if you, even if you refer to the IMS forecast from yesterday, you will see how global growth is upgraded, South African growth is downgraded. So there's a lot of idiosyncratic issues in the system that's not supported to the rent. Um, we also have the minister tabling his, um, his, the national budget on the 21st of February. Um, we expect uh, fiscal slippage to continue. So that's also not going to be supported from a risk premium perspective. And also the elections obviously will, will be a very um, considerable risk event. So we think the rand will, will be under pressure at least in the first half of this year before we start to see some improvements as the markets, you know, um, consume some of this information as it comes along. And just back to that fuel price in conclusion, it's going to be very difficult for businesses and motorists to mitigate the impact of the fuel price hike. Mm-hmm. Mm, definitely. And, and as I've mentioned, especially at this time when we're still dealing with elevated inflation, um, wages have not kept up with inflation. Uh, so so interest rates are also elevated. So it's a cost of living pressure. And unfortunately, it's going to compound the pressure on the consumer. And you, you're so right when you speak to um, businesses, because as we know, with these logistical issues, more goods are being transported on the road. So that's an input cost as well that can end up being passed on to the consumer. Margins are being compressed on the uh, producer and business side, and consumers are definitely under pressure, whether you look at the lower end or the upper end. Um, the system is quite tight at the moment. Well, we'll get those uh, petrol price uh, results or the the announcement uh, next week in terms of the hike, but uh, thanks for setting the scene for us. Koketso Mano, FNB Senior Economist. Uh, that uh, about wraps it up for us. Before we go, we asked on our daily poll yesterday what your preferred working arrangement post-COVID-19 was. Uh, three options, full-time office-based, hybrid or full-time remote work. And your thinking was overwhelming support, uh, well over 60% for the dual option. Today, we spoke earlier on the program about corruption, and my question to you is, are there new actions? that South Africa can take to address the scourge of corruption. One, strengthen judicial and law enforcement systems, implement stricter enforcement of anti-corruption laws, or increase resources to the judicial system. If you've got a view on that, we would like to hear in our very simple to operate daily poll. Just go to MoneyWeb on Twitter X, also on our LinkedIn page, and I will have results on the uh, Thursday edition of the show. MoneyWeb at midday. We are live at noon weekdays. We're then up as a podcast. Goodbye to you. Thank you for listening. Listen to the daily live stream of MoneyWeb at midday or download episodes on moneyweb.co.za, the MoneyWeb app, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Or follow MoneyWeb News on social media for more updates. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.